The information in this podcast is current on the day of recording. It is general advice only and does not take your personal situation into account. It may not be suitable for you. Participants in this podcast may also own the stocks discussed. For a full list of current recommendations and stocks owned by staff, members of Intelligent Investor can visit www.intelligentinvestor.com.au. Welcome to Stock Take. My name is Gaurav Sodi. Joining me today is analyst Mickey Modek. G'day, Mickey. Hi, Gaurav. You've got that dog under control? No more barking, tail wagging, I drooling. wouldn't say under control. I've bribed him with a bone, so he oh. seems to be pretty occupied. Okay. <laughs> that means we've probably got, what, 30 minutes or so before he's finished? Yeah. Yeah, that sounds about right. All right. We better kick on then. And with us also is analyst James Carlyle. Hey, James. Good afternoon. Yes, no, no um, loose animals in, in your house, I assume. Well, I've thrown my new dog out in the garden, um, <laughs> so hopefully that'll keep him happy for a little bit. Okay, well, we'll see how we go. Any barking or drooling, you'll know it's either Mickey or the dog. <laughs> <laughs> Let's begin with reporting season, gentlemen. We've just finished it up this year. We wrote a little summary of it on the website, um, and I think the general consensus was that it was a harder reporting season than average but also probably better than what many people had expected and certainly better than what most of us had expected, I think. Um, JC, what, what do you think about it? Well, I think I think um, it was definitely better than expected. I think the funny thing is that um, the the real disaster situations, we've, we, we'd been kept up to speed with pretty well because they'd raised capital or they'd warned and they'd, you know, we, we knew exactly what to expect from the real disaster situations but um because i suppose everyone was tending to be quite i mean when i say i mean the you know company managements were tending to be quite conservative um they probably some of the ones that had done quite well out of all this um perhaps hadn't kept everyone abreast of of how they were going so so there were a few surprises on the upside with companies that were actually performing quite well out of the pandemic from all that sort of thing there are a lot of very large moves up in particular, and I don't recall too many big moves down, but lots of, you know, you, you'd wake up and see a company up you know, 10% plus in a day. Which Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah. The, the, probably the biggest move down was Seek, I suppose, which fairly early on, they came mm. out with their, one of their scenarios, which they painted a fairly gloomy scenario for the next year. Um, and the market, that was worse than the market was expecting. But again, they're probably being quite conservative. I mean, there's nothing in it for managements to be aggressive with their forecasting at this stage of the game, I think. So mm. um, anyway, the market took them at their word and um, sent them down about 10%. Mickey, how did you see it? Yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean, it was um, it was funny. I guess you kind of, towards March, you kind of, well, going back before March, I think most of us were probably not as worried about the pandemic. Um, and then I think around March, um, probably got much more worried about it. Um, but by then the prices are already fallen so much. Um, but I guess, um, uh, to, to JC's point, just on the, on the conservatism, uh, it's, it's funny how quickly management becomes conservative. And then as an analyst, how conservative your own estimates become mm. instead of, you know, estimating, you know, this thing is going to grow, you know, when you maybe guessing what earnings are going to be in three years, um, you know, you just slash everything and go, what's the absolute worst case scenario? And I think everyone's doing that on mass. Um, and that's how, how you kind of ended up where, where we were back in March and 
yeah, you just forget to think about, um, I think you forget to think about the sources of upside and you forget to think about, you know, which businesses are actually benefiting because you're just in this mindset where you're thinking really only about the what, what can go wrong. It, it reminds me also that every investor really looks back to the last battle to see how this one might play out. And I remember we were doing it and everyone else was doing it too. We were looking at the SARS breakout and finding analogies with that. You know, yes, it's going to be painful for a couple of months. Travel-related stocks seemed pretty obvious to be hit hard. But I don't think anyone imagined we'd get to the situation we're in now. Um, no one was even contemplating that, I don't think. I think... Well, I think lockdowns was the was the was the thing, wasn't it? I think in February, early March, people were, you know, imagining a pandemic and a you know a pretty nasty sort of um, uh, scenario. But um, but I don't think anyone really imagined that there'd be lockdowns and mm. borders would be closed, and yeah. so that's really obviously had a massive impact on various stocks. Um, I guess there was and, a few was, people, but yeah, there was. Well, look, it wasn't um, us. I don't think. Yeah. Well, yeah. Okay. I mean, it's never been done before, has it? You see, I mean, so uh, that, I mean, look, um, there was no precedent. There was no precedent. I think that's right. So, I I mean, people did anticipate it, I suppose some did, but, um, that would have, you know, I think that was quite brave, but anyway, I remember after, um, nine 11, uh, I think insurance for terrorism just went through the roof and all these companies had to have disaster recovery plans and plans for what, you know, a big terrorist outbreak, um, especially in the US, that was the, the done thing now. And, and what that tells, tells us is that once an event, an unprecedented event kind of happens, it gets stuck in corporate memory and people start planning and preparing for it next time as well. So it makes me wonder, now that we've got a pandemic situation kind of under the belt and we know it's possible and we know what it looks like, even when this is all over, do travel-related stocks just go back to looking what they used to look like? You know, does does Sydney Airport still carry as much debt? Do banks lend under the same scenario? I, I think, mean, I think definitely some... not. Definitely yeah. not. I mean, Sydney Airport quite clearly will have to <laughs> um, keep enough liquidity to go a couple of years of lockdown. I mean, you know, the there's been what four serious pandemics in the last hundred years, fifty wow. eighteen, fifty seven, sixty eight, mm. and then now. Mm. Um, so you might anticipate every twenty five, thirty years um, mm. on average. But of course, the ones fifty seven, sixty eight, they were ten years apart. We mm. could have another one of these in ten years' time, and uh, you know, companies will <laughs> had, had better make sure they're ready for it. I wonder though, as well, you know. Um, just having watched Bill Gates, um, you know, talk about this before it happened, I guess, warning everybody about it. And in that speech, he kind of talks about how pandemic preparedness is sort of like having a military on standby. And it's just about allocating a big, you know, government budget to that kind of having people on the front line being really well prepared. Um, and that could potentially help limit the impact. I mean, this time around, we were pretty much totally unprepared and didn't take it seriously yeah. um, because it was, you know, but next time, um, you know, I wonder how much of a difference that makes. Well, yeah. I think for, for years we've been cutting health budgets, haven't, it, haven't we? Because everyone wants to pay less tax. And so, you know, that's been a, a target. And so I suppose what this tells you is you need to have some redundancy factored into the, the system. You know, it doesn't matter if your health system isn't, isn't operating at capacity because, uh, you know, it's going to have 
um, these situations thrown at it. Um, and at least me. for a few decades, we might carry we we might go with that. But then eventually, I think it was I think it was I read somewhere that three years ago, I think the UK sold down their emergency pandemics yes, stock right. of uh, yeah. of PPE equipment because <laughs> they finally thought, oh, you know, it's never going to happen. <laughs> yeah. And then, yeah. so uh, I guess eventually the, the the memory sort of fades, doesn't it? But, it, but I mean, let's hope not. <laughs> it reminds me, I've got a friend who lives in a fancy waterside suburb and he's been really lax on security because he lives in a nice area. Um, you know, he knows all his neighbours. He, he doesn't, I mean, locks his doors, but he doesn't have any sort of external security. And one day got broken into. And after that, two or three days after that, his place was like a fortress. There are cameras and bars everywhere. And of course, he's never been broken into. Again, I just wonder that, you know, once you go through, once your level of preparedness has been shown up as being lax, that really only happens one time, right? Um, mm. After that, you, you learn your lesson and you prepare. So I think Bill Gates, all of Bill Gates' suggestions undoubtedly can be taken up. The level of international preparedness is going to increase. And I don't know, maybe the probability of this happening again is is actually going to be lower. I mean, imagine for, for a while, but if, but if, while, but if yeah. it's another 50 years before we have a serious pandemic, um, as it has been since the last one, yep. um, then, uh, you know, people, people forget, don't they, probably? Mm, yeah. They do, yeah, yeah. Still, better 50 years than 10 years, I say. Well, I mean, this is the, the this is the uncertainty, and that's and so that's why. I mean, I think previously, so two years ago, one year ago, people weren't weren't factoring lockdown. People still had in mind that it was possible to have a pandemic. We we've mm -hmm. had, you know, but but I don't think anyone factored in the possibility of being told to stay in your house. Yeah. Um, and you know that that's that's a, a change. And I think business plans in future will have to factor that in. If you go to the, if you want to start up a small business, you have to go along to the bank, mm, yeah. um, and the bank's going to say, "Well, what are you going to do? You know, if if there's a, a, yep. a lockdown, um, and you'll have to make sure you keep enough cash on hand, and you'll have to, you know, uh, you'll probably have to pay a slightly higher interest rate. I mean, all of these, it's it's a major long-term impact, I think. And and one of the things that we do in our household now is we always make sure we have a redundant toilet paper supply because you don't know what's going to cause everyone to just freak out so it was you Gaurav was... I wasn't prepared before but no, I am prepared you now, are now right? Yes. Yeah, <laughs> uh, one more thing I wanted to bring up about reporting season before we move on and, and that's that the market's been very quick to anoint a handful of well more than a handful a whole segment of winners and their share price has soared and it, it makes me worry that um the market doesn't seem to be distinguishing between a genuine structural change in growth and a pull forward of demand. Um, so you look at the valuation on, say, JP Hi-Fi, Harvey Norman, like that to me is clearly a pull forward of demand and not a structural change. Whereas something like Next DC or Macquarie Telecom or Whisper, you know, quite possibly a, a structural change. And yet there's not much difference in the way the market's treating those two stories. Have you guys, do, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I'd, I'd agree. I mean, I, I, yeah, I guess there's there's some permanent beneficiaries, and then there's some that are um, maybe benefiting more from a one-off hit. Um, that are that are kind of benefiting from having you know their competition shut down or from um, everybody locked up at home. I guess you know. Um, whereas if you're a business that you know can capture customers and keep them around for the next five or ten years, then you know that's that's really valuable. So. Um, yeah, it's just about distinguishing and kind of, I guess, deciding which is which, really. 
Well, and and it's also the the you know the underlying um, thing about interest rates. You know, so so what this is essentially, they, you know, all all the concerns about interest rates ticking up uh, have gone away now, and and that does make uh, you know long term growth very valuable. And I suppose the markets. Um, uh, chasing those stocks to pretty pretty crazy levels in a, in a lot of cases, I would say. But that's so. There's been that effect as well as the um, you know the uh, the reporting. Yes, season. quite right. Yeah, this this liquidity impact. Yeah, hard to measure, but but definitely not hard hard to ignore. Um, I guess the the difficulty is trying to do the reverse of that as well. Is trying to find the stocks that have fallen but won't have a long term impact. Hang on a second. My wife's on the phone. Hey, Crooks. <laughs> Oi! Shh. Cool. I can, hear, I can literally hear every word you're saying. Jeez, if I if I talk to Sarah, like that. <laughs> that's good. Um, He's just walking around the house yelling. Jeez. <laughs> you know what happens if I do that? Walk around the house yell? I get thrown out of the house. Really well. <laughs> All right. Um, oh yeah. Uh, I guess that the trick is to try and find the reverse of that, to try and, and identify a business that has fallen but won't have a permanent impact and the impact is just short term, which is the perfect segue, Mickey, for the next stock <laughs> under discussion, which is Vista Group. Now, tell us about this company and why it sits on our buy list after, I must say, a little bit of uh, to and fro within the team. Uh, so Vista Group is the parent to eight uh, movie and global film related uh, software businesses. Uh, and so it caters essentially to kind of, you know, studios, to distributors and all the way to exhibitions. So things like cinemas. Um, it's, ha- it's had a bit of a rough ride, obviously, with um, uh, cinemas shut down. Uh, and uh, And obviously that's had a big impact on their customers. And so... They've had to provide a lot of support to their customer base, and that means that they're not really collecting much revenue uh, at the moment. Uh, and even prior to that, this had kind of been one of those unloved. Um, it was kind of in the um, uh, naughty corner, if you want to call it that, because of. Um, was it unloved, Mickey, or was it crappy? Well, well, I don't think it was. A, it was ever a kind of a crappy business. I think it was just it had fallen out of favour. Um, it, it had kind of uh, gotten up to, you know, 80 times earnings and it was growing revenues really consistently, like 15, wow. 20% a year. Mm. Uh, and then um, they announced a couple of lost customer wins um, that they thought they were going to get. And they announced um, a transition of the product from legacy on-premise uh, software to a software as a service model. Uh, and then obviously what happens then is that, you know, people begin to realize that earnings growth um, is not going to be what people thought it was. Um, and so you've had kind of this bad news on top of bad news type of situation. Uh, and so the share price is probably about 80% or 75% off the, the highs. Um, I guess what was attractive about it, though, is it's just very dominant in its niche. Um, it's got massive market share, something like over 51% of uh, cinemas use this software globally, um, excluding China which is a huge market share. So they're by far the biggest. And, you know, if you think cinemas are going to be around in five or 10 years, and, um, you know, I, I think that they will be. Um, and I think that people will come back to cinemas pretty quickly as soon as they're allowed. Um, 
then you know this is the market leader and and they're the strongest player and they're probably going to use this period to pick up market share and emerge as a stronger business on the other side so there are definitely some risks in the short term and i think they're they're burning some cash at the moment but it's more of a um i think if you if you take a long term view with this one then hopefully it's 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 um it's going to do do well so i think i think people are sure to go back to cinemas i mean it, it's a different thing it's it's one thing you know it's easy to say people are sit at home and watch netflix but um i mean people eat food at home as well but they're still keen to go out to restaurants and uh you know it's an experience isn't it and um it's uh it, you know it's 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 a bit of fun it's a bit different and that you get a much higher quality than you could possibly get at home the, the my concern about the stock is that um you know sometimes this sort of thing where it slows down the incumbent uh or the first mover or whatever um you know it enables other people to catch up and i just wonder whether there's there's it, it just increases the risk that um a chain of of cinemas or someone someone else makes their own software or just it just just this slowing down of of the of the major player just enables someone else to to get a foothold i mean perhaps the argument is that that you know now's the last time <laughs> you know they're not going to they're not really not going to be bothering with that sort of thing at this moment and i suppose that's the argument but um that that's what creates the uncertainty for me mm. yeah i think i think though the thing is with um with this well there's two things i guess on this front so one is just that the industry is so beaten up right now that i find it hard to think that there's going to be a new entrant um so there could be existing entrants that you know try to take share but i think vista for example is probably one of the only publicly well it is the only publicly listed um cinema software provider so they've been able to use this period to raise capital i think they're smaller competitors and more regional um there's no global competitor like vista um so they've got very small competitors in you know south korea and you know parts of maybe like poland and things like that um but you know they're not as well capitalized they're not as big they can't go out and raise money so i think it's just going to be harder and harder for those people to uh, for those companies to survive relative to vista which is just raised capital it's got a got plenty of cash on the balance sheet it can invest in its product um it can keep rolling out new features and i actually think it's going to go the other way where you know they're going to be taking share off those off those smaller players so i think the um the the industry at the moment is not attracting new entrants and i think um these guys are just going to be the strongest and they're going to be able to take share off those smaller players what what about a cinema chain making its own uh is there a chain that I, I i feel as though there's a chain that has yeah you know 50% of the world cinemas or something like AMC, that is that right uh, is that, no, I don't well, know the... AMC doesn't have that that many um, isn't isn't it the biggest one though what sort of yeah. cha- what sort of share are we talking about is it i mean it's uh, 20, um, 30, no yeah. it wouldn't it wouldn't be that high i mean it might be right. 10 15% i guess um, is there a chance that they would make a a competing product do they use yeah. vista's product uh, I'm not sure about AMC specifically, um, but it has most of the large chains on its software. Right. Um, but there are there are um, cinemas that use the software, but I think uh, sorry that create their own software. Um, but the difference is that so Vista has um, it can provide software to more screens, and so you're spreading out the development cost across a wider customer base. 
Um, and so if you've got 60,000 screens that you can spread it out to, that actually increases the amount that you that you can spend on the software and actually improving the software relative to someone who owns 10,000 screens um, and wants to do it all in-house. And I just think it's a different business function. Um, and uh, yeah, so there's I don't, I don't see that as a massive threat um, realistically. I think, I think making software is a distinct business from actually running a cinema. So I suppose it depends on how sophisticated um, the the software is and how much of a benefit there is in terms of um, because it does more than just uh, you know um, sell popcorn, doesn't it? I mean, it it it, it anticipates demand. It builds your website um, for ticketing and all that sort of thing. I'm uh, you'd be able to say better than me, but it does yeah. um, uh, a whole a whole heap more than just. Um, the base. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and analytics and things as well. I mean, they can see, um, you know, give you, give you, um, advice on what, which movies will perform well, uh, you know, things like that. So, I mean, it's, it's all facets of the business. I think like recreating this kind of software wouldn't be easy. I think it would be, and also you got to think like the cinemas right now, the actual chains, they're the ones who are actually under even more pressure. Um, so how mm. they're going to find the money to go out and build a massive software pro- pro- mm. product right now is, you know, if it's, if they can't, if Vista can't do it, then yeah. I don't see anyone else that can. Well, and of course they're building in uh, the, the current, they're currently, or they've, they're currently investing in a cloud product or they're, they're about to release, are they? And so that presumably will have advantages over the, you know, the typical sort of installed software. Is that right? Yeah. So the cloud-based, uh, product, uh, should just allow um, them to roll out new features uh, quicker to their to their customers, and also actually um, take on feedback more more quickly as well. So, whereas at the moment, if you've got an on-premise um, cinema software, you've got an IT team that's actually sitting at the cinema, and when you need to update, you know, your software, if you're a chain with, you know, five thousand sites, you've actually got to get somebody to go out to a physical premise and actually update the software. Um, which is a huge, huge task. Um, so there should be just benefits in terms of how quickly they can roll out improvements and updates. Um, and uh, and there's and a long, yeah. long runway of potential improvements. I suppose that's 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 the main thing because then if you can keep if you got a good cloud product and you can keep improving the software to bring benefits to customers, then that's that's really what's going to keep out the competition, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I think I think there's and build the economies of scale. Yeah, yeah. Mickey, I remember people saying for years that cinemas are dead. I've heard it for about ten years that you know the um, people don't go anymore. Young people don't go, and that really, I'm not sure if that's borne out in the numbers. I follow events group pretty closely, and they make very good returns from their cinema business. Um, and I believe the number of screen screens in the Western world has held pretty steady for for many many years. And grown very strongly in China. So um, I wonder if, if the thing that's different now is the advent of um, streaming. Can you talk a little bit about how streaming might change and challenge the cinema business? Do you think it, that that's the case? Just for some context, yeah, yeah. I noticed that um, Disney is releasing a couple of their new movies directly on their streaming service. And when they do that, they actually they make um, multiples of their their money for every streaming customer compared to a customer who sits in the cinema and watches that same film. So the incentives seem to suggest that they'd rather stream their movies rather than send them Mm. to the cinema. 
Yeah, I mean, it's certainly possible for Disney because I guess in Disney's case, they're trying to win customers onto their platform right now. Hmm. Um, and they're kind of in a battle for market share. And so maybe the, the incentive is to release it direct just to get ta- to actually just capture customers onto your, um, I don't know what they're calling their new... Um, Disney Plus. You Disney clearly Plus. don't have young children. <laughs> <laughs> no. uh, so yeah, so, you know, so just as a way to attract... Um, but I think the economics longer term probably won't really justify it because mm-hmm. if you're a Disney Plus customer yeah. and you're paying, you know, 15, 20 bucks a month. Actually, and then like eight bucks a month, but yes, continue. Oh, I think, think I can see the point you're making. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, wouldn't you just wait the extra yeah. 60 or 90 days to yeah. watch it for free? That's exactly um, what I'm doing because they're charging yeah. $35 for the new film. You can either pay that and watch it now with the same experience, right? Same TV, same couch. Um, or you can, as you say, wait probably 30 or 40 days and watch it with mm. for no additional charge. Same yeah. same movie, same film, uh, same, sorry, same screen, same couch. Yeah. Yeah. For yeah. the customer, the cinema seems to be a much better deal. Oh, yeah. I mean, well, if you're going to pay 30 bucks, I mean, you'd rather go, go see it on a big screen. Absolutely. I guess. But yeah. I guess the, the only difference is maybe you can spread it out over a whole family. You don't need to buy three or four tickets or whatever. Mm, but, true. Um, you know, I think it's uh, the difference is that it's just an, it's an event, isn't it? Going to the cinema is I mean kids love it. It's it's a you know it's a, it's an outing. You go and have a meal, go to the cinema. It's a whole different. I mean you know it, to compare that with sitting at home watching something streaming um, to me is apples and pears. Yeah, who's going to want to <laughs> sit at home watching a movie after all this? You know, I mean, isn't everyone keen to get out of their houses? I mean, <laughs> yeah, I think so. Mm-hmm. So does the investment case here really just fall to the success of cinema in the end? Because these guys have a very big market share. It's pretty hard for competitors to catch up and they're not likely to pour money in. Is it just about whether cinema survives? Yeah, well, I think that's a that's a part of it. And then also just that this is, yeah, as, as you say, this is the market leader. I think they can kind of continue to take market share, even though they're already so big. I think that they can um, probably keep growing that maybe by... A, couple maybe a percent or two each year um so i think ultimately this is just going to be in five years once they've completed that transition this is going to be like every other software as a service stock and people are going to remember that and then um hopefully uh the share price is higher than it is today so that's basically it in a nutshell really jc any other thoughts on that no sounds good it was um uh a lot of discussion about that one. I think it. Uh, I don't know if it divided the team. I think we all came around eventually. Yeah, I don't, yeah. yeah, exactly. I think it was. Uh, it's just. Um, I think a lot depends. It's. It's one of those ones. A lot of these software companies are quite mm. difficult because you don't get to use the software yourself. It's hard to know the level of sophistication, and I think the level of sophistication is crucial because that's what keeps the competitors at bay. If you, that's what means you have the economies of scale and you keep investing and you make it better and. And that that's what keeps the competition at bay, um, even despite this hiatus. Um, and so I suppose it's it's hard to gauge that level of sophistication um, uh, from from the outside. But um, you know, I think you you have to sort of make a judgment about it sometimes. And uh, um, you know, I think it's it is one good. of the challenges with 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 software businesses. I guess like um, mm. so on a side note, I was just quickly watching the ASX small and mid cap technology presenters and every software company is growing revenue at 30%, you know, they were all, 
you know, got these amazing outlooks and it's, um, you know, massive addressable markets. It's the like TAM, so, you got to mention the TAM. <laughs> it's like they're just all all just kicking goals. It's so hard to differentiate between mm. them. Um, so, yeah, I don't know what that means, but maybe it just means just buy software and I don't know. Nothing else. <laughs> <laughs> Hmm. Yeah, Vista was interesting. I, I I quite like the idea. I like the um the exposure to the recovery because I can see I can see good reasons why no one is buying it now and why investors would stay away from it. Um, one of the things that concerned me was that it's got a very big market share. You know, as you say, over fifty percent, and yet the business is only sort of two hundred million dollars. So, um, you know, to get bigger. You either have to charge your existing customers more or take even more than half the market, which is can be challenging to do. Um, so the I think the downside here is quite low, uh, very low, in fact. And, and I guess you get really good optionality on, on the cyclical recovery. But as a longer-term recovery, I do wonder how much – I mean, probably not a stock I'd own – I'd hold for, you know, five years plus. Mm, yeah. Well, I guess it's not, it's not one of those companies that's got a, you know um, – the, one of those addressable markets that's just kind of infinite. Um, but having ha- having said that, you know, it can it can still charge more um, to its existing customers, and it mm. can still keep taking market share and adding a few percent here or there as the market grows. So, um, and the yeah, valuation think, is quite attractive. Um, yeah, at this price, it does look quite interesting. Yeah. Mm. So. Okay. Um, we've got another stock actually for for the recovery and, and JC might bring you in for this one. Um, a favorite of ours that we've recommended many times over the years and generally done really well out of, in fact, um, which is Flight Center. And I had a quick peek at the share price quite by accident the other day and I noticed it's it's like $13, James. This is this thing has really bounced back. I just wonder, we all kind of know. Well, it was 17 in, uh, in well, May or something. It oh, got down it? to sort of right. eight or it got, got yeah. down to eight or so and then bounced to 17 and then it was back to 10 and uh, it's, been, <laughs> it's been all over the shop. <laughs> it which moved is, around a lot, yeah. Yeah, not surprising, I suppose, in some respects. Yeah, I mean, this travel has seems to be the barometer for sentiment about the virus generally and, and where goes sentiment, there, there seems to go, the stock price of these things. Uh, where, how are you thinking about these travel stocks now? Because I, I, I do wonder whether they have a lot of the recovery priced in. The market caps after the very hefty capital raisings are actually a bit larger than you might expect. Has the recovery already been priced in? Uh, I don't think so. Um, uh, I mean, um, the, the, the question is, I mean, look, I think you've got to look beyond the, um, the pandemic uh, you know, obviously the pandemic created existential risks for a lot of these stocks. Um, consequently, they've raised money. Um, and I think that they've raised enough to get them through to the other side. Flight Center, even with pretty much no revenue, should be able to get through to the end of next year. Um, and by then, you'd think people would be moving around at least within their own countries. Um, and for example... Not if in, Queensland's Premier has anything to say about it. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, all right. Well, at least within yeah. Queensland. I mean, but yeah, look, I mean, that's... But that's Australia. I mean, so mm. so um, uh, the corporate business, which is, mm. uh, from memory, about a third over in um, the US, um, and that's, uh, I think, 60% domestic travel. Um, so, and look, you know, within... I mean, I think... In the rest of the world, by the end of next year, 
um, with or without a vaccine, I think that they're going to be pretty much through the other side of this because um, of the immunity that they'll have built up. Um, uh, you know, so I think people are going to be moving around um, by the, but certainly, you know, probably by next Northern Hemisphere summer, I would think. Um, but you know that that all remains to be seen. But I think I mean it's it's, it's conceivable they have to raise capital again, I suppose. But if you if you look beyond all that, um, Flight Center um, has an attractive business, uh, which is particularly the corporate business. I think the leisure business um, we've all uh, you know accept begun to accept that. I mean that's pretty compromised by um, you know online travel agents. Um, mm. Uh, but the corporate business um, actually has something to gain from technology um, mm. because, you know, in terms of uh, managing budgets and booking and all that sort of thing, um, you know, there, there's there's benefits from technology for companies having their, um, their travel managed by someone. Um, and so I think that that's uh, got a long-term growth story to it. Um, and I value those profits quite highly on the other side of the pandemic. The interesting thing about the result last month um, was that where previously they've said that they made about half, half, a half between um, leisure and corporate profits, um, they actually came out and split that out and said that it was actually more like two thirds, one third in mm. um, 2019, which actually makes a huge difference to the valuation if you um, if because we, we place a higher multiple on the corporate profits, um, and so given that they have a higher share, um, that that boosts up the the valuation. So, I think it's entirely rational that the shares have increased a bit since before the result. Um, does the and, does the corporate uh, business concern you? Be, uh, because a lot of companies have now gotten used to limited travel, and they've invested in video conferencing. And has behaviour changed enough to shrink the market for corporate corporate travel? Well, maybe a little bit. I mean, the the scenarios um, that we so that we put up an article in what was it July, I think, mm-hmm. um, and put a couple of scenarios. One where the corporate so that, so when so post pandemic we had it shrinking by thirty percent in our bearish scenario and shrinking by ten percent in the bullish scenario, um, and I think that's realistic. Uh, you know. I think it's a long-term growth market, though. In, in Australia, for example, only about half of corporate travel is actually managed by anyone at the moment, and I think that technology can uh, can add value to that, and I think that that share of the market will increase. Hmm. Um, so I think that there's uh, it's a there's a there there are, there's a long-term growth story there. James, do you reckon? Um, well, I, I like I don't think there's any doubt that travel will eventually. Well, there is doubt, but I mean, I you know, I'd, I'd also agree that travel will probably come back. Um, I think people are pretty keen to get traveling again. But like, what what concerns me would probably be the capital raising or the need to raise capital. Do you reckon that they're? Um, do you reckon what what kind of scenarios need to play out if that for them to potentially raise capital from here? Well, they've got to roughly till the end of um twenty twenty one calendar twenty twenty one, um, making barely any revenue. Um, uh, so if they, I think if they, um, I think if they make absolutely no revenue, it's about September next year. Um, but, but making the sort of, they made 17 million, um, in July, uh, of revenue. Um, and 
you know, it, it, tra travel is ticking ticking along. I mean, essential services um, are still traveling, um, and a lot of those, um, uh, you know, uh, government organizations have their budgets, um, their travel managed by someone. Um, so that's that's ticking along, and I think that's probably going to increase, especially the domestic travel. I mean, obviously, you know, we're, we're viewing it from. I mean, Graham Turner actually said this on on the chief executive that is uh, said this on the um, on the call. You know that Australia has very conservative settings for the pandemic compared to the rest of the world, so it's very easy for us to sit here and imagine uh, no one travelling at all because that's pretty much <laughs> how yeah. it is for us. But um, you know, in in Europe, people are going on holiday. People are travelling around. They're going to different countries. I can um, imagine there's probably tears in Mickey's eyes at this point. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, that's. I mean, look, it's a different different approach, um, mm. and uh, but that's what's happening. Um, and look, it's probably going to get a bit harder in the northern hemisphere over winter. Would be um, a reasonable guess, um, but uh, but ultimately, um, you know, they're showing a, a. I mean, I suppose the you know the, the bird has flown in some respects. It's 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 you know we're. we're adopting the settings that we're adopting because we've got the virus so well contained it's it's um you know so rife i suppose overseas that um you know there's there's less benefit um in in trying to uh you know suppress it aggressively how do you think a, like a, a a proper recession affects these recovery stocks i wonder you know because we've had kind of in this um, artificial period right now where we're getting all the stimulus it's almost like by the time these businesses start to recover is actually when, you know, all that's going to start rolling off. So I wonder, you know, when when we actually get that, you know, people going to be traveling as much or even going to the cinemas or doing anything. Yeah, um, I think I, I, I think that's right. I mean, you know, overlaid on all of this, you've got to um, anticipate the economic impacts. But we're talking about, um, you know, lopping 30% off travel budgets <laughs> in the corporate sector. Um, you know, when you're talking about those sorts of things, um, you know, a bit of a, a recession here and there and a reduction in demand of a few percent um, doesn't make so much of a difference, mm. doesn't it? True. I mean, they're, they're priced for pretty bad scenarios, flights under Webjet, you know, the travel stocks generally. Um, so... You know, no doubt economic weakness w it would have an impact as well. But I think if we get travelling again, you know, um, that's that's the least of our concerns, really. And JC, what would what would be your pick for the best looking travel stuff? What would you buy out of the that area today? Uh well, I I would note that. Uh, well, I'd say a couple of things. Um, uh, they're both flight center and webjet are both basically bang on our buy price at the moment. They're just mm -hmm. sort of uh, wobbling around there. Four dollars for webjet and um, thirteen dollars for flight center, and I'm sort of reasonably comfortable with those, um, uh, you know, with those with those buy prices. So I, I wouldn't be, um, you know, I mean they're they're yeah ba basically um, one or the other really. Um, they 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 have slight differences. Um, Webjet is is more focused on the the hotel um, bed bank business, mm -hmm. um, so uh, so yeah, so there are differences. Um, Mickey, what about you? Same question. 
Well, I, I'm not sure. I mean, I was I was probably going to ask the same question. I've I've looked at the sector and I'm pretty interested in it, but I'm I'm not sure if the best way is to pick one or just to diversify across maybe a basket of them. And um, yeah, I mean, I think that's the I I hold uh, Webjet and Flight Center, I should say, um, and we've we've said. I mean, I think they're both. Uh, I might be wrong here, but I think that we we have three percent portfolio uh, maximum weightings on them um but if you hold both you probably want to you know you probably wouldn't have the full three percent in both so you know maybe four or five percent if you spread your money across each um and and we should i should note that they're both speculative given that they're not making money at the moment by a long way so um but uh yeah i mean i think they're both uh, pretty good opportunities yeah, well, we've known Flight Center for a long time, and that corporate business has been hidden in Flight Center for a long time. So, well, it didn't. You see, this is the thing. When we were, I mean, we, we've, yeah, we've recommended it um, on and off for years, and as you said at the beginning, done pretty well out of it. But ten years ago, this corporate business barely existed. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so the argument ten years ago was all about um, online and the incursion of online, and whether bricks and mortar travel agents were, were doomed. And during the GFC, it got down to about $4, I think, because at that time, um, you know, they had a bad year. When Flight Center has a bad year, it looks very, very bad. It uh, misses its overrides and the profits come crashing down. Um, and, you know, when when the bears get their honey, they, they get very overexcited. And you, get all <laughs> the, you get all the stories coming out, you know, and everyone was, uh, you know, the whole internet thing was, was getting a lot of airtime. And actually that, um, has proved pretty accurate. Um, the bears have probably been right about about that, um, but the difference is that I mean, you know, at the same time they built this corporate business, which has really saved them. I think. Yeah, I've always been a bit uncomfortable about uh, Webjet. Um, it just it because it's a reseller, effectively. I mean, I understand the points about. Um, collection and integration with uh, all the suppliers and it seems to be well managed as well it's done very well but um, I, I would probably prefer flight center and i must say i i quite like Qantas um at the moment you guys all laughed at me when i mentioned that uh at the meeting <laughs> but, i'll do um, it again <laughs> <laughs> and maybe that's good reason maybe i need a good yeah, we wrote an article years back um was it about rex or virgin hmm. or something um, you know, about, what is it, Aeroholics Anonymous, which is the, what Warren Buffett talked about. You know, whenever he thinks of buying an airline, he gets on a phone, I think probably to Charlie Mungo, who tells him something <laughs> so stupid. And, um, yeah, well, I think you need that number. Yeah, I might, I might need that number. <laughs> no, look, it's got, it's got <laughs> the, um, you know, the uh, the frequent flyer business, hasn't it? Yeah. Um, which is which is a very good business. And, and so is that domestic airline business. They actually make very good returns from um, domestic travel. Um, international business, I grant you, is, is not great. Uh, but most of their profit actually comes from frequent flyer and domestic travel. You've got a huge cost-cutting cost drive um, and the best excuse ever to remove costs you probably couldn't do under normal conditions. And then you've got very low fuel prices. You've got a comp competitor that's out of business and kind of struggling to scramble planes together to compete. And I think on the other side of this, you're going to have the biggest bounce in demand in history. I mean, can you imagine what happens when 
restrictions are lifted, everyone. But if that's the case, everywhere. then uh, you'd sure. I mean, uh, well, look, if that's the case, then I'd rather be in Webjet and Flight Centre. Really? You I don't know. know. I think I'd rather the, be in the and or Sydney Airport. You know, I mean, Sydney the, Airport. Uh, yeah. I don't know that I don't know that Qantas is more leveraged. You know, I oh, think that what's the upside for for Qantas? Well, they've got a big fixed asset base. Um, yeah, and yeah, I'd, uh, that's got to help. I'm I'm not used to hearing that um, described, <laughs> described as a as a plus point. It is a plus <laughs> when when you're expecting a big lift in demand. I think that that's operating leverage working really nicely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but I, I take your point that the others, well, certainly Flatante is a bit of business. I I am not quite sure about Webjet yet. Well, the thing about yeah, well, the thing about Webjet, Webjet is that I, mm. I think it sol- it solves a problem. You know, yes. the hotels need some way of getting yes, the. I think that's right. There's a there's a lot of hotels, and they need um, a way of getting their inventory to a lot of travel agents. Um, and there's you know there's a there, there are different ways of doing that, and and there's various channels for that. Um, and the bed bank seems to be a very efficient way of doing that. Um, mm. And so that's the argument for Webjet. Mm. Um, and I think, yep. uh, I, I think it holds water. And I think that there's um, ways that they can improve that, um, you know, by cutting out mistakes in booking and that sort of thing. The challenge, um, though, with, with Webjet, though, I mean, I think we talked about this, but it's just with the share price where it is. I mean, they're kind of relying on continuing to make acquisitions and um, rolling up that. Uh, you know, bed banks business. Oh, I don't, I don't I think guess. they need to make acquisitions particularly. Um, to, to take to um, keep taking market share, though, right? Or well, I think that, I mean, that if you make an acquisition, deal. you increase your market share. But I think that you can increase it without as well. Um, I mean, they're the number two player, and uh, but about half the size of the number one. So, mm-hmm. um, but they, but they're you know what is it five? They're about five percent, and the number one is a, sort of eleven or twelve or something. Um, so is that and not so, a, so not they're, they're both very small, um, relatively. You know, it's a, it's a fragmented market. Um, but if you do a better job than other people, you know, you can uh, increase your market share um, without necessarily acquiring other companies. That hasn't been the case for Webjet historically. They have. Well, I think they've by, done both. Yeah. I mean, they've they've been yeah, buying right, businesses, actually, but they've also been getting a lot of organic growth. I mean, they so um, you know that's the argument. I mean, that, that they would like they would say that an increasing share of the of, of hotel beds around the world will go through bed banks in the future. Hmm. Well, can we say this? Can we say that I get Qantas, JC, you can have Webjet, and uh, Mickey, you can have Flight Center. Oh, geez, all right. Well, we'll divide um, it up. Um, I'd yeah. be very, very happy for you to have Qantas. It is good, though, <laughs> um, I think, or have, like with Qantas, I mean, it's good. I don't, I don't think it's ever good to be too dogmatic about things. And like, if you look at Warren Buffett, you know, like he's just bought this tech business. I don't really know too much about it. It's called Snowflake. It's like the most unwarned Buffett like stock I've ever seen. Um, <laughs> is it actually him though, or is it his um, well, sidekicks? I yeah, mean, I don't know. it's a bit hard to tell these days, isn't it? I think. Does it matter? Yeah. Is it if it's his sidekicks? Is, is but it I'm sure he gets. Oh no! What it what it does? It, it only mean, matters in as much as you can't say that it's okay. um, yeah. him departing from his. You know. Right. Um, uh, well, I can't see Berkshire of you know, 15, 20 years ago doing something like that. I mean, mm. or 10 years ago, even. No. no. Finally, senality has snuck in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this will be the time when the tech bubble crashes for, for good. Um, no. But, um, but yeah, so, I mean, you never know. Qantas could be um, the next... Uh, 
Well, he sold all his airline stocks, didn't he? But I don't think they all had frequent flyer businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, or but he, but he's, he's sold them all in, in March. I mean, I think, didn't he? Pretty much at the bottom. I, I, I'm, I'm not sure I got <laughs> that completely accurate. Sold airlines I, at the bottom I think and he, bought he, a tech he, stuff. He, at the top. He, he'll be <laughs> dusting off his Rolodex and finally that number for Aerolics an, oh, Anonymous. <laughs> I might get that card off him if this does if this goes pear shape. But there you go. All right, gents. I think um, we are starting. To, I think uh, the, the, it's it's probably pretty obvious we should probably roll this up. <laughs> <laughs> rambling a bit. Yeah, rambling a bit. Uh, JC, thanks for joining us. Thanks for your time. It's a pleasure. Mickey, take care of yourself over there. Uh, thanks for joining us. Cheers. Thanks. Uh, for everyone else, thank you for listening. <laughs>